0: For MeatPoultry.com, I'm Ryan McCarthy, Digital Media Associate Editor. As companies began to reopen processing facilities during April and May, Many questions remain about how worker safety and the food supply security will continue when capacity increases during the summer. We wanted to reach out to someone to get a perspective on how poultry and red meat supply will be affected throughout the rest of 2020. So we turned to Dr. Bob Norton, chair of Auburn University Food System Institute's Food and Water Defense Working Group. In this episode of the podcast, Norton outlines what will need to happen for companies to maintain and increase capacity at plants after community spread has subsided among workers. In the second part of the podcast, we discuss how farmers around the meat industry will continue to struggle with the backlog of inventory over the next few months. Norton also describes his role in monitoring the pandemic, including why other American infrastructure has not been as affected as meat processing. We also discuss why early data has shown less closures in poultry plants compared to beef and pork. Take a listen, and please give us any feedback on the podcast. After several weeks of volatility that we've, we've seen throughout the food supply chain, uh, what's been your thoughts on the poultry industry specifically and handling of uh, COVID-19 outbreaks?
1: Overall, I'm I'm very impressed with how fast they're moving on on some of the uh, issues that are being identified, and um, I think that we're going to see more improvements um, in the facilities uh, that as the companies get in line with uh, the CDC recommendations. So I see across the industry um, and a very strict adherence to those f- um, guidelines that the CDC is providing. And I think we're going to see more of that in um, red meat as well. Um, but overall, I, I am impressed how fast they're moving.
0: Right. Um, some uh, poultry processing facilities, meat processing facilities in general, have, have slowed or temporarily stopped production. Uh, do you see that happening throughout the rest of the year as more cases are identified in, in the next few months or so? Um, do you think community spread is going to be something that's going to continue? in your estimation?
1: I think we're gonna see continued uh, community spread. Um, whether or not that community spread um, actually translates into the food processing industry or whether it takes place outside of the food processing industry is another question. And the CDC just published a, um, a report, COVID-19 among workers in meat and poultry processing facilities in 19 states as of April 2020. And um, that report has got a a lot of information in it that calls um, some serious questions as to whether or not infections are occurring inside the plants or are they ancillary infections that are occurring outside such as they mentioned transportation, um, shared housing, things like that. And I think as we get more testing in place across uh, various communities, I think we're gonna have a better picture of where these infections are coming from and whether or not um, additional modifications need to be made in working spaces. Um, they've spread the people out. Uh, in some instances, they've got barriers placed between the people. There's staggering work schedules, staggering breaks, things like that. So they're they're adhering to the guidelines as provided by CDC, but this is always a very dynamic situation and CDC is likely to change some of its uh, recommendations in the coming weeks and months. So I think you're gonna see a continued question as to where the actual source of these infections is occurring.
0: Is there any other steps that they could be taking at this point, from, from your perspective, or is the CDC guidelines pretty right on at the moment?
1: I think the guidelines the CDC is providing are as good as the, as you can have right now. Again, what we need is a better picture of what's happening in the communities. And until we have more thorough testing, more um, more people tested, um, to determine when they were infected or, you know, the, the, the dynamics of those infections. Until we have that, we're going to have to kind of assume some of these things. So some of these uh, requirements and, and recommendations are, are based on assumptions um, that kind of cross infectious diseases as a whole. So some of the principles that we know. Um, somebody that's infected is is if they're in close contact with somebody else, then they're likely to uh, spread that infection. Uh, so those are the principles that are being used. Uh, but again, knowing the CDC as I do, I suspect we're going to see some modifications. We're going to see some adjustments. I don't think we're we're going to see anything major in which they, you know, go 180 degrees in an opposite direction from what they were. But I think we're going to see some more nuanced um, guidelines in the coming weeks and months
0: um, do, do you have any idea what what kind of guidelines that they they might be looking like from from that perspective, or is it is it just too early to tell on a lot of that?
1: I think it is too early to tell um, and i I've, you know going back to what I said I think a lot of it's going to be dependent upon the the epidemiology, that we get a better picture of the epidemiology and understand um, the dynamics. Um, obviously we want to minimize any conditions in working spaces, whatever those working spaces are, whether they're meat processing plants or or transportation um, warehouses or whatever they happen to be. We want to minimize um, the chances of getting an infection, but also we need to Um, be very vigilant about making sure that sick people or people that are infected but not symptomatic, that they don't get into those working spaces. So I think you're going to see CDC maybe adjust some of those things as we start to open up the economy. And I think you're going to see companies that are going to um, come up with some more specific to their situation, um, guidelines.
0: Yeah, Bob, I know you've had the the Food and Water Defense blog on the Auburn University website before. Um, was something like a COVID nineteen pandemic something that you had been tracking in the past? I know you you cover a variety of different subjects on that blog. So,
1: right, we. We have all. I mean we always talk about pan, the next coming pandemic so we're always thinking about when when something's going to happen. this one there was a lot of planning for pandemics in the past the government's been doing a lot of pan, uh, pandemic planning they've been doing a lot of gaming they've been doing a lot of um, red teaming uh, exercises on pandemics but this one caught us by surprise uh, in some instances because, it was layered upon an, a pre-existing problem that we had with uh, influenza. So we had a, a bad influenza season, and in um, the late fall, we were starting to see a lot of people having this um, these respiratory kind of infections. And um, honestly, even at this point right, right now, as we are in May, mid-May, um, we don't really know when exactly the uh, COVID-19 virus arrived in the United States. Right. And there's there's a lot of debate within the epidemiology community. Um, there's certainly, I think the consensus is they're backing it up to maybe January. I'm not so sure that when this is all said and done, we do have a good epidemiological picture. It, it may be. Earlier than that, it may be in the December, perhaps even November, October time frame. So it was moving within the population and moving around the world slowly. And then it took hold on top of a bad flu season. And it probably confused the clinical picture that uh, where people were seeing and expecting influenza and perhaps without testing assumed that what they were looking at was influenza or some variant of that or some other coronavirus that um, are pretty typical in that time frame as well. In the fall we see a lot of coronaviruses circulating among uh, people and then their are common colds. Um, it's a variety of uh, for the common cold and the, the virus can be very severe in even with a common cold it can be a severe in kind of infection so um, there was a lot of of um, assumption we were looking at something when maybe we were looking at actually, actually starting to see something different
0: hear from the experts in the industry on the meat and poultry podcast the latest news trends technologies and people in the world of meat and poultry processing delivered right into your ears. Listen every Friday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, From your aspect, I know you're looking at um, the agriculture aspect of this a lot of the times. Um, We've we've talked and we've heard a lot of media reports about the, the processing aspect of all this, but can you talk a little bit about how uh, the poultry farmer or the the pork farmer or the beef farmer is having to deal with all of this right now as well and how that's, that's going to really make it difficult um, in, in the future too. Sure. Uh, what's
1: happening with these, with these uh, meat processing plants is these things close or they slow down. Um, they can start to back things up. So you can have uh, farmers and growers that are contract growers that are needing to put animals in basically into the pipeline and get them to processing and we're starting to see some of that backup occur so um, farmers are not able to take their animals to market when they need to Uh, you know they're at the right age they're at the right weight those kind of issues and that's starting to happen and in in some cases it's been severe enough like in the Delaware uh, region where farmers actually had to euthanize the birds and and uh, chickens and and then um, bury them because the pipeline couldn't take them, so those kind of things are very unfortunate. F- Fortunately, that's a those are r- rare occurrences. So there are modifications to schedules and and. Um, where a plant closes down, um, there may be some way to uh, shift things or change the timing. Those kind of things are happening. But it is putting pressure on the farmers and the producers. And uh, the companies are working with them as closely as possible because nobody wants to kill animals and just put them into the ground. That's, right. that's a horrible that's a horrible situation. That's neither good for the farmer, it's not good for the company, and it's not good for the United States food supply. So we, wherever possible, we've got to avoid that. But sometimes, unfortunately, um, in a couple of cases, it was just not possible to divert the, uh, in the, in that case, chickens. And so they were destroyed and then put away into the ground.
0: Right. Um. What what have you seen, um, have you been taking a, a look at everything that's going on or have you been focusing a lot of your attention on Auburn, the areas around Auburn University in Alabama, um, when you've been looking at the, the, the pandemic so far? We've been
1: um, pretty global. I'm working on a couple of, of task forces with the state, but I'm also working with um, uh, a working group um, that is providing information for the government and the Department of Defense. And so I'm, I'm looking at things pretty broadly. I'm one of the few uh, people involved in agriculture. So I'm putting a different spin on some of the things that are being done by other groups. But uh, we really started to look at food and agriculture as critical infrastructures. And in the next few weeks, we're gonna be producing a series of articles in which we look at that, those critical infrastructures as critical infrastructures and try to understand the dynamics of, for instance, the question would be, why did we see disruptions in food processing that we haven't seen in the electrical power grids? So for instance, uh, in, the, in some parts of the power grid, they've had a substantial number of workers also Infected with COVID-19, and yet you didn't see brownouts. So what we're trying to do is ask the question: Why, why is food and agriculture different from other critical infrastructures? And then how do these critical infrastructures interact? So um, we we talk about cascading effects. So something that can happen, and then as it progresses uh secondary third uh tertiary and quaternary um changes occur that were unexpected and we're trying to understand the dynamics of that so um i think there's a lot of lessons can be learned out of food and agriculture and obviously we've got to address the issue of the food supply um and i don't think it it is unreasonable to Uh, characterize the situation that nobody expected the food supply to be disrupted in any way. And the food supply is certainly not failing. And I want to emphasize that. It's not failing. We're not going to have starvation or anything like that. But what we're seeing is disruptions and inconveniences and um, the public is not used to being Going to um, grocery stores and seeing empty coolers and empty uh, you know, frozen and fresh meat cases. Right. So um, we've got to understand better how this critical infrastructure works, and then take the lessons learned in the COVID nineteen and apply some solutions to that. Right, those problems
0: is it's a big part of figuring out those solutions. Um, just a, a big measure between what uh, DOD and the USDA and whatever the companies are able to do. Is that how you see the solution really coming out more than anything? It's a more of more of a hand than normal from from especially the USDA in something like this?
1: The the issues that we're seeing is obviously the federal government's a huge bureaucracy. And there's a lot of redundancy in some things and there's not a lot of redundancy in other things. So in in some things it's very, there's a very few um, number of experts, uh, whereas other places there may be an abundance of experts. So what we're trying to do is to understand across the bureaucracy, what are the things that we need to do better? What are the things that we, where we really did the right thing and there's a lot of there's a lot of success stories you know I don't want to paint too negative a picture there are a lot of success stories. Uh, For instance uh, one of the groups that I'm working with is a group within DOD and there are um, and it's actually a medical group so it's all physicians and um, the, um, the group identified very early the need for basically what we call clean air. And uh, clean air just means air that does not have viral particles in it. So that was identified very early in China that uh, physicians that were uh, becoming sick and dying were being exposed to very, very high numbers of viral particles. And so early on this group started looking at what can be done in terms of clean air. And so, as we continue to work on that problem, and that group is obviously focused on the medical community, we're also trying to take those lessons from that and transfer them into the food processing plants. Right. And it's, um, it, the idea is to minimize um, viral particles in any kind of environment in which people are exposed. In a processing plant, um, adjustments can be made for like um, the turnover of the air, which in a processing plant is significant anyway. I mean, these, the turnover is, uh, air turnover in a processing plant is massive and, it, and it's very rapid. Um, but if you increase that perhaps slightly, um, you, re- you reduce viral particles even more. Uh, in work area or non-work areas like break rooms and um, restrooms, locker rooms, places like that, we didn't really think about that before, that those could be the sources of, of infection. So again, taking those principles we're learning on the medical side, we can apply those to the processing side and perhaps make those modifications to those facilities. And then again, just reduce the viral potential viral load Right on top of screening a more stringent screening process um, so you can minimize um, in both directions.
0: Right do you, do you think I've been asking a, a couple people this but do you think um, poultry processing specifically has been able to have a not as many shutdown of cases because there is a chance to do a little more social distancing in a poultry processing plant compared to the labor intensiveness of pork and beef. I mean they're all very labor intensive but poultry is a a little different than those two. Um,
1: That's an interesting question and uh, we have had several discussions about that very question internally. I don't know that we at this time we can give a definitive answer Um, but it may have something to do with the way that the the design of the buildings. It may it may have something to do with how um, the workers are interacting with each other. It it just it it's a fascinating question and it's a question that needs to be answered and it, and it's going to take some time to do that. But that is a very um, it, it's an it's an almost an anomaly. Why why are we seeing so many more red meat plants than we are poultry plants. Not that we're not seeing it in poultry plants, but what's different? And um, I, I don't I don't really have an answer for you right now. Right.
0: No, it's it's a very, you know, it's an inch. I was just curious because we're seeing it here near us. We're in Kansas City and uh, there was a plant near St. Joseph, Missouri, which is nearby had 373 cases and they were all asymptomatic. So it's i know for you especially it's it's difficult to even get a grasp on on this virus right now so um, but i'm also just curious to to know your your point point of view
1: right and and what's interesting if you go to that report from uh cdc which i'm looking at right now um, it it's 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 very interesting because it's one of the things it points out is in among 17 states reporting workers in the with affected facilities 3% of the 130,578 workers received diagnosis of covid-19 so the percentage of workers ranged from 0.6% to 18.2% and and that's really interesting in light of what we're seeing in in the the mainstream press, because the mainstream press would seem to indicate that everybody's sick in these processing plants and and the data coming out of CDC just shows that that's not true. So what we're gonna have to do is go back to those plants and look at, okay, if it was in plant A had 0.6% and plant B had 18.2%, what's the difference in those plants? Is there something different in the plant or is there something different in the community that supports the plant, in the population of employees? What is the what is the answer to that? What what are the differences, compare and contrast? And as of right now, we're, because we're in the midst of this um, pandemic, nobody's had the time to be able to, to look at that, but those are questions for the future that we have to answer.
0: For sure. Um, just a, just one last thing, uh, Bob, and, and then I'll let you go. Um, w- when you've looked over a lot of these things and measures that the CDC has asked and and uh, processing plants have had now where they're, they're creating social distancing and, and all these other things, do you feel like those type of measures should be continued after the pandemic anyways, um, just for overall health? Or is it just something that they've got to balance to because they've also got a find a way to get back up to the full capacity to at some point too.
1: I think it's going to vary from uh, industry to industry. So, you know, the, the lamb industry or the poultry industry or the pork industry or beef, whatever, they're going to have to find their own solutions. I think a lot of things are going to change for forever. I think we're going to uh, probably see some modifications in these plants that are going to be made so to, as to avoid these things in the future, to avoid these same problems in the future. Um, I think we're going to see a lot more automation in a lot of plants. But you know, if you're if you're in a you know, like for instance, in Colorado, where there was one plant that was a bison plant that had a number of cases in it. Well, that's a small plant. You know, what can a small plant do to modify? Um, probably not a lot um, because of the costs for modifications. So I think you're going to see a lot of variation. The smaller plants are going to probably um, have to uh, be very balanced in what they do, uh, considering, of course, the bottom line, uh, and and particularly in where the... um, the bottom line may be very close to um, a, a break point, where if right. you add too much, uh, you're not going to be able to make the bottom line. So, uh, small plants are going to have to modify one one way. Larger plants, I think, are going to you're going to see a lot more automation. And a lot automation, of course, is going to eliminate some jobs. Um, but automation machines don't respond um, to COVID-19 virus. And it's an unfortunate thing for somebody to lose a job, but I think that that's gonna have to be one of the solutions, the long-term solutions. And what the companies are gonna have to do is balance that so that the workers can be retained wherever possible. And they may have to modify what those workers do to, To accommodate that workforce that you do want to keep as much as possible. Um, Because obviously, machines can't do it alone. Right. So, we're going to see business models changing. We're going to see um, probably some engineering solutions. um, But we're also going to see some of these changes pretty much, I think, permanently.
0: Right. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's a very interesting time in the industry and in agriculture. So um, I appreciate your time today, uh, Bob. It's uh, some, some great insight. And uh, thank you very much. I appreciate it.
1: You're quite welcome. Appreciate you talking to me.
0: Make sure to check out the latest stories from the magazine and online at meatpoultry.com. Also follow us on social media on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram, all by searching at meatpoultry. And if you like what you heard, please leave a rating and review. It really helps us. Alright, that's it for this time, folks. Thanks for listening, and have a great day.